um, the notions and whatnot. So first of all, I think we should go over um, kind of something known as uh, sexual intelligence. And, and this is an important issue because, you know, when we look at uh, uh, human sexuality across the ages, um, we, we haven't always approached it from a very personal perspective. Um, uh, I'll give an example. Uh, so uh, the majority of women in the United States will spend their entire life not even knowing uh, what their, their vaginal area looks like, how the vaginal system works, um, that there's actually a separation between the vaginal shaft and the urethra. Um, and, uh, this even, uh, I'll, I'll even put this out there. This is even evident in TikTok with males and stuff. I've seen, uh, uh, TikToks on, on males understanding of the female anatomy, and they're usually completely wrong. Um, and on the male end of things, we know that men have a very skewed view of sexuality, especially today in the invent of internet porn and, and pornography that there's for men, they have a more uh, 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 fantasized or romanticized version of human sexuality and how it is. And a lot of times that also creates confusion for them. So there's this notion of sexual intelligence um, and it has four core, four core components to it for people who uh, and this comes from research that is done on people who are truly satisfied with not only their, their sex life, but their sexual expression in life. Um, and the first core component that we find people who really uh, live fulfilling lives sexually is they have a, a deep self-understanding of themselves, uh, that they, they, they know their body, uh, they've studied their bodies, they've studied uh, uh, you know, where they feel pleasure and where they don't, um, what they like and don't like, and they have very clear boundaries in, in, in that. We also know that people with this level of, of um, sexual satisfaction have good interpersonal sexual skills, uh, meaning that they're able to express what they want and understand the needs of their sexual partners and be able to negotiate really what goes on during that um, act. The other thing that um, is interesting is they have a kind of a scientific knowledge of um, their sexuality, meaning that they're able to understand uh, the role sex has in their life. They understand the risks. Uh, they understand the benefits. They understand that yes, while we talk about the bonding agent, agent of human sexuality, they also understand the reproductive aspects of sexuality. And we also have come to understand that people have a critical, critical consideration of culture, politics, and the legal context of sexual issues. Um, and uh, this comes down to having positive social role models um, in, in, in their sexual life. Um, and I can bring this up in the case of um, parents. Whenever I teach human development or I'm teaching a developmental class and I get into the topics of things like um, uh, child sexual abuse or 
uh, high risk teen sexual behaviors. Um, um, and it's interesting when we look at uh, 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 families where uh, there's there's been uh, sexual molestation or there's been uh, uh, teens who enter sexual relationships at earlier and earlier ages. Um, uh, you would expect socially because of our culture that that must be a highly sexualized family, that they must let their children watch sexual movies, they must um, uh, sexually express themselves, that the parents probably act sexually inappropriate in front of them. And while some of those components are true, what we find is, is that the majority of children who come from sexually molested families, or they enter into sexual acts at an earlier age, the mass majority uh, live in families where sexuality is repressed. It's not talked about in the family system. Parents are uncomfortable talking about it with their children. And there's actually an interesting correlation uh, because again, I always get the question of when should I start talking to my child about sex? Um, and the answer is, is when they start bringing it up. And this can occur as early as the age of two, three, four, asking about their private parts and asking about uh, you know, why they get excited when they touch certain parts of their body and those types of things, because there's a strong correlation between the age that a parent starts talking to their child about sexuality and when that child will enter into high risk sexual situations. And we find that the earlier parents start conversations about sex and sexuality, the um, uh, longer they're more willing to wait off sex and intersex um, um, sexual relationships. Um, a good example is if we put it on binary terms, uh, parents who are open about sexuality and open about talking to their children at a developmentally appropriate level. And I want to put that out there. You know, you don't talk about, you know, the actual act of sex with a two-year-old but talking about their body parts, talking about, uh, you know, why it feels good is important, but then it gets develop it developmentally more complex since then. If we look at uh, um, that versus families who don't talk about sex, who repress it and think that it's, it's bad when a child brings up things or a parent feels just uncomfortable talking to their children, the average, the, the average age for children in the first condition where, where, where parents are comfortable and do start bringing up the issue, when children bring up the issue, they tend to wait off on sex from the age of 16 or above. Whereas families who repress sexuality uh, tend to have children who will enter into sexual acts um, and high-risk sexual behavior right around puberty at the age of 12 and under. Now, that's not everybody. There's always different uh, idiosyncratic differences between families and whatnot, but socially, those are the trends that we see. Um, and we also see, uh, you know, in, as the example of puberty in females, we see that families who are emotionally distant from their children who don't talk to them about things, sensitive topics such as human sexuality, 
their age of puberty is getting younger and younger. We're seeing individuals in these type of family systems actually going, the, the, the youngest uh, young lady that I, young girl, I should say, that um, uh, I'm aware of going through puberty because of my past work was the age of uh, five. Um, and I've dealt with uh, child sexual abuse cases where um, I, I was working with young girls who were pregnant by the age of eight and actually, uh, even though the state didn't permit it, were to become mothers at the age of nine. Um, and so we see these trends and that's what uh, means taking in both scientific knowledge, what is appropriate and developmentally appropriate to talk about children and, and sexuality, but also taking into the cr critical considerations of call, culture politics and legal context, because all of those systems tend to want to repress uh, human sexuality. So those are kind of the what what sexual having good sexual uh, intelligence is, and what we see in the literature uh, of uh, healthy sexuality versus unhealthy sexuality. Okay. And then whenever taking into uh, sexuality, we have to understand that it's, it's really governed by three very important aspects. One is sexual, uh, I mean, psychological factors. These are emotions, attitudes, and motivations. And psychological factors um, uh, can deal with our own attitudes uh, and our own experience um, with sex and sexuality. Um, and really drive our attitudes towards it as we grow and develop. Other psychological factors include, for example, when we went back to, uh, if we go back to sexual orientation, um, uh, I mentioned that there are different age groups on average for both males and females, where they will question their sexuality. They will actually look at their opposite sex attraction and be curious about it and, and wonder about it and maybe even be physiologically turned on by the idea. And some people will actually go ahead and, and enter the uh, into some type of sexual relationship during these time periods where sexual motivation and sexual attraction um, uh, 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 wave and, and change a little bit. Um, and then that also creates, uh, when we talk about psychological factors, we have to talk about uh, social aspects or social conditions, uh, which is number two, the process by which we learn society's expectations and norms. And probably, uh, you know, in, in going back to expectations and norms, even though we see the United States becoming more and more accepting of different sexual orientations about female and male sexuality, and that we still have a cultural norms that really dictate um, uh, some of our, our emotions and feelings about it. And, and an example is, is um, slut shaming for women. Um, it is still seen, even though uh, we, we think our, our, our culture is becoming more open about female sexuality, we still see women who express having multiple sexual partners deemed less worthy or, or more deviant than women who express having less sexual partners. 
And with men, we still see the opposite. We see men who have few sexual partners as, as kind of wimpy, uh, unknowing, um, over-controlling, where we see men who have multiple sexual partners as the terms would be studs or, or very vibrant individuals or people you want to be around. And so when we look at social conditions, even though we think we're becoming more evolved with human sexuality, we still have those social pressures that still shame different people for different sexual behaviors. Um, and so social conditioning is, is an important aspect to, to human sexuality as well. And then the third one, of course, is biological factors, because sex is, after all, a biological action. And so we have to look at uh, hormones and innate drives, understand that um, uh, even though we could put it on a continuum with people who want very few sexual interactions to people who want uh, many sexual interactions, we have that biological drive, one, to mate, uh, which is the reproduction aspect of human sexuality. But we also have that need to bond with people. And in a biological perspective, sex is one way to, to do that. If we look at the bonding chemical of oxytocin, um, we know that it is produced uh, really heavily during two times. One is during childbirth. And that creates uh, not only the milk production in females, but it also creates bonds between the infant and the mother and the infant and the father. Um, we also produce high levels of oxytocin when we're in the biological aspects of having sexual intercourse. And we release oxytocin, which is that bonding agency that bond the two individuals together. Um, and so we, we, we know that there's two different biological aspects to human sexuality. Okay. Is there any questions about these biopsychosocial aspects or this notion of sexual intelligence at this moment? Um, I have a question. My two-year-old um, grandson is always playing with his private parts. Now, is he already having like enjoyment or pleasures? Is that why he, he does that? So yes, we know that children, you know, we, we will actually, we can, we've actually observed children masturbating in mom's womb. And the reason being is it's, it, it, but this is the issue. And, and, and this is what I always, you know, tell parents is we have to separate adult sexuality from what you would call, I don't even think it's a good term, child sexuality, okay? Um, and, and there's two important reasons why we need to do that. One is for the parent. Um, uh, even though, you know, uh, children under the age of puberty uh, cannot produce sperm or anything, and so they won't have any ejaculate with their, with their pleasuring or whatnot, um, we still have heavy bundles of nerves, uh, especially in the male's external penis. And so rubbing those nerves feels extremely good. 
And we find the same thing, even though young girls will do it at an older age, around three or four, we find this to be true with the clitoris. And what, they're, what they are just doing is they're really uh, enjoying that physical sensation of stimulating those nerves in those, those areas. Now, the reason why it's important to separate uh, adult sexuality from child sexuality is if the child starts to play out adult sexual acts, such as um, uh, acting as if they're humping something or they start to be curious about other children or other adults, and that's when they masturbate or when they start doing those types of things. That's when we have to be concerned about issues of molestation and child sexual abuse or exposure to those things. Um, and so those are things to look out for when you find your child or a child masturbating is, are they doing it because th they're stimulating those nerves or are they doing it because um, uh, they've, they've been exposed to some type of sexual act? And that's usually expressed in the way that, that the child is doing it. Usually when a child has been molested, they will act out those molestations um, uh, when they're self-pleasuring. Now, what's recommended in situations like this is to create a learning moment with children. And so, you know, even though age of two is very difficult to talk and whatnot, uh, we have found that it's very important not to shame the behavior, but to create a conversation with the child about, yes, it feels good, um, but there's places we should and should not experience that feel good. Uh, for example, if someone else tries to make you feel good there, that's not right. This is a conversation about private parts and, and the like. Uh, this is conversations about this feels good, but no one else should be making you feel that way. And it's also a good opportunity to start talking about things like self-control. Like, I know that feels good, uh, but uh, it's not something you should be doing in situation X, Y, and Z, dependent upon your family situation and your family morals and, and spiritual um, uh, teachings. So, um, so yeah, when, when like I said, um, uh, child masturbation occurs because of the bundle of nerve cells that are located in those areas. Uh, but we do need to, as parents and caregivers, uh, recognize uh, the difference between when a child is doing adult sexual behaviors versus just realizing that there's certain parts of their body that feel really good when they're touched. Um, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, it does. Okay, okay. And I will tell, I'm just going to give this point of advice. I usually give it, um, but since we're on this topic about children, I am going to say that protecting children against uh, pedophiles and sexual abusers and even family members who would seek to molest a child when having conversations. Oh, hold on just a second.
I apologize, everybody. Give me just one minute, real. All right, I apologize about that. I, I had a quick, uh, small emergency about uh, some things. Uh, anyways, oh, so I was going back uh, to, to uh, child sexuality and, and child abuse and protecting children against uh, molestation and stuff. And one begins with those conversations, not leaving things that your children are experiencing with their body unaddressed. But the other important thing, and I'm going to put this out there because it's something I saw all the time with children who were molested and sexually abused, is as a parent, we need to be comfortable with human sexuality, our own body and our, own, our children's body. And we need to provide children with the proper names of their body parts. A penis is a penis, a vagina is a vagina, and we have to get really comfortable actually expressing the anatomical names and giving accurate, accurate expressions to uh, children. And the reason why I say this is in almost all the majority of child sexual abuse cases I worked with, uh, the abuser exploited the names that mom and dads gave their children's body parts, you know, like uh, your button or your, your, your special part or something like that. Because we, because for some reason, parents tend to give child's names, very cute names, they give it almost playful type names. And I'll give an example um, uh, of a case I worked and and why it's important um, is uh, this was back in Idaho, uh, in, uh, in Northwest. And a mother who was a caretaker for a child, her husband left um, and was losing jobs. So she had to get a job. And so she asked her uncle and aunt um, uh, to take care of her, 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 her young child who was at the age of four at the time. And uh, the school, uh, the preschool and, and, and kindergarten started to notice that she started to become very withdrawn, very um, inattentive. And they called mother in and said, hey, there's something going on and whatnot. Uh, the mother's experience with the uncle and aunt, though, is that she gets her homework done. They do everything they're supposed to do. Uh, they, 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 and, and her view of her uncle and aunt were very positive. And so she didn't initially think it was because the child, she thought maybe it was because of the divorce that happened and the social disconnect and mom being away from the home. And, but she kept coming home saying that her uncle 
kept putting his hands in her pocket. Um, and, you know, this is winter time up in the Northwest. So she's always wearing a coat and, and he, and she says he, he's always just saying he's trying to find something in her pocket. Um, and it started getting worse and worse and worse. The child became more and more depressed. And she kept saying, uncle keeps checking my pockets for stuff. Well, one night a mom was giving the, the, her little daughter a, a, a bath and mom mentioned, uh, mom mentioned to her daughter, make sure you wash your pockets really good uh, tonight. And then all of a sudden she had a light bulb moment and realized that the name that she gave her daughter for her private parts are her pockets. Because she, she didn't say, you know, she had reasons why she called it that and why she was uncomfortable. Uh, and then they came out with forensic interviewing and stuff that the, the the uncle exploited the cute name mom gave the private part for his own needs um, and for his own sexual gratification. The reason why I bring up that specific situation and everything is we see this in research over and over and over that most commonly children who are sexually abused by family members or anywhere else, pick up on the, the, the discomfort of the parents and start to understand that because of that discomfort, they probably either didn't have conversations with their kids or that they probably used non-anatomical uh, names for their private parts. And so, um, uh, on this conversation, uh, you know, and since it's kind of brought up and whatnot, and since we were on the topic, um, it's really important to have conversations with children to get over our own discomfort and make sure we give clear anatomical names for their private parts, uh, because those are all the things that uh, in my clinical experience and my experience trying to protect children who were sexually abused those are the number one things abusers exploit, okay? So I just wanted to bring that out since we were on that conversation. All right, does anybody else have any further questions? No. Okay, all right. All right, so let's look about what is the importance of human sexuality? And we can see that um, sexuality uh, overall uh, is, is pretty uh, important when we ask people, the, the percentage of men and women who said very extremely or moderate important, we can see that greater than three quarters of, of men and about two thirds of women state that sexuality is very extremely and or moderately important. But when we break this data down, we do see some cultural differences. So when we look across cultures, we can see, even when we compare, you know, different regions of the world, that sexuality becomes more or less important. We see that um, uh, sexuality for people in Korea uh, tends to be most important compared to other uh, states. And when we look, uh, let's see, here in the U.S., uh, about three quarters of people feel that sexuality is important. And that's 
that's uh, similar to our Brazilian and Latin uh, and Mexican uh, counterparts on our continent. Uh, and then we can see that it can vary. For example, in Asian countries, it's very important in Korea, but less important in Hong Kong with only 37% of people in, in that country feeling that it's important. So we can see regional variation. So within regions, such as regions of the Asian population, but we can also see that there's consistency, can be consistencies based on the continent. So if we look at the American continent, there's very similar be similarities between North America and Latin America. So, uh, from these two graphs, we can see that human sexuality is important to humans, but it does vary from culture to culture and from country to country somewhat. Um, and so uh, those are kind of the sociological aspects of, of people's uh, expression of human sexuality. And of course, one of the topics that uh, has always come up is, is adolescence uh, and adolescent pregnancy pregnancy. Um, we have seen uh, interesting declines in, in recent years um, uh, among teens uh, um, and whatnot. In fact, we're, we're seeing today that uh, uh, um, pregnancy for young women and, and men and, well, well it's sexual act that um, uh, relates to um, uh, teen pregnancy is has to do with we have an increase in age and when people are becoming more interested in reproduction and and non-safe sex acts um, uh, so as we can see here though um, uh, and I, I'm, I'm curious to see what everyone here thinks uh, is that the United States when we look at equivalent countries to to the United States so countries who have similar wealth levels, similar population distributions, the United States still has uh, one of the highest teen pregnancy rates compared to our modern equivalents. Um, and we, we, we can see this, uh, that we're, we're higher than most industrial nations. Uh, and we see that it's most prevalent among our higher poverty, uh, people in poverty, and those who have less access to sex education and health services. And I, I think this is an interesting debate here in the United States, and I kind of want to explain kind of the psychological aspect of this, is if you look at areas of the country who are against sex education, these also are the areas of the country that have the highest pregnancy rates and boys and girls are entering at, into high-risk sexual behaviors at younger ages. Um, and, and again, it kind of goes back to our previous conversation about uh, in these areas, they see such high pregnancy rates, they then hold on to that cultural idea that if we repress human sexuality, it'll get better. Uh, they so in a lot of these areas, if you understand our culture, um, it also explains why community members are so resistant to sexual education, because according to our culture, 
we have sex because we have access to sex or we have knowledge of sex. And so in these situations, um, um, we see that uh, there, there's higher rates of teen pregnancy. So uh, I just wanted to bring up that, that kind of contradiction in thought because the, the areas of the country who have the lowest rates of teen pregnancy and have children who are waiting at later ages to intersex and high-risk sexual activities are places where there's access to contraceptive sexual health and um, uh, sex education. So it's kind of a contradiction here in the United States about uh, sex ed, but if we understand the environment that individuals who are who are against sex education and access to sex health uh, programs and understand the social and cultural uh, uh, factors that are impinging upon them, we also understand why there is resistance to uh, a sex education and, and the like. So we always have to keep in mind when we're looking at these things to keep this social psychological and cultural aspects into play instead of just saying well you know if you if you allow the school to teach your kid about sex it would lower their chances of having sex well that doesn't meet our cultural attitude and so we have to uh, in a sense take a different approach with those communities where we see high rates of teen pregnancy and high-risk sexual behaviors so And we do find in, when it does come to uh, teen pregnancy that um, only about half of women graduate high school when they, they become pregnant. Uh, this is compared to our current rate of graduation for females is between 80 to 90%. And so it drops to 50% when um, uh, in high school. We also see higher rates of health problems and incarceration for adolescents who are pregnant and higher rates of unemployment. The societal cost is estimated at about $11 billion per year. Um, and some of, the sex, uh, uh, some of the successful approaches are sex education and HIV education, early childhood programs that lift abilities and aspirations, and programs that engage teens into uh, talking. Um, and the other thing that has been noted, and I kind of go back that this from our earlier conversation, is approaches must target the whole person, not just sexual urges to be controlled, as I mentioned earlier, with, with conversations with our children and taking in their entire experience instead of assuming they're doing it for deviant reasons. Um, and so... Uh, again, this isn't everyone. I'm going to put this out there. There's always variation. I have seen incredibly successful individuals who, who did get pregnant during their adolescence. So this doesn't account for everyone, but we do see that a population trend uh, in this. So, all right. I'm going to skip this one for now and I do want to talk a little bit about sex trafficking um, so uh, and, and just kind of put this point out here out there because I think it's very important um, 
as far as creating ad advocacy to stop this uh, sex trafficking and everything that goes on. So sex traffic trafficking can be defined as a forcible removal of children from their families for the purpose of prostitution or pornography. Currently, there is an estimated more than 100,000 children being trafficked within the U.S. Um, and large uh, efforts to stop this are largely under-supported, inefficient, uncoordinated, and unevaluated. And uh, as we know, you know, um, we know that Native American populations are the most, uh, have the highest number of children who go missing each year, but also have the highest rate of uninvestigated reasons why children go missing each year. And I just want to bring out some, some again, some social aspects to this whole idea of sex trafficking, okay? And it comes down to economics because sex trafficking is a billion dollar industry if we were to put it in business terms each year. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, but the, the thing that a lot of people don't understand is they always think, oh, it must be the deviant uh, uh, bum or someone sex trafficking these children. But something we don't understand is that the cost of having a child that you're going to sexually abuse varies between $1,000 to four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000. And the younger they get, the more they cost. In fact, uh, and children under the five are often uh, prostituted for well over $8,000 for just one night. Now, I don't know about any of you, I don't know any low-income or middle-income people that can afford that. Um, and so it's really a myth that sex trafficking is done by people of low status, people that, uh, uh, and, and it's committed by people who are deviant. So that would include, uh, uh, in our culture, people who are impoverished, people who who, who are, have hard time being successful in the world. No, these act, acts are being committed by very successful people uh, who have uh, lots of wealth. And I'll, I'll give an example of this. And, and uh, one year I was in Washington, D.C., and we were trying to get a sex trafficking law passed. And so I was there doing some advocacy work and I was sitting outside one of our United States senators offices waiting because he wanted to meet about this. Um, well, uh, the, the, the two other people that were there that were against this sex trafficking bill were people who um, lobby for one lobbies, their main lobbying place is um, Apple. Um, and the other one that was against uh, this was a lobbyist for uh, General Electric. Uh, these were corporate lobbyists who were there to lobby against a sex trafficking bill. Um, and, uh, and so that example kind of exemplifies the reason why sex trafficking is such a problem. And politicians do play to the idea of trying to slow sex trafficking. trafficking. So there has been in some states 
and even on the federal level, some mandates for, for example, the D Department of Justice to pay more attention to sex trafficking and everything. But the thing that they don't do is they give mandates, but they don't give any financial or resource support in any of those bills. In any of the sex trafficking bills, you won't see money invested into actually slowing sex trafficking. So they're just really playing words to it. They're not necessarily actually doing anything about it. And so this is kind of a soapbox moment for, for this uh, part of the lecture, but um, uh, it goes back to if we want to understand the, the source of a problem, we have to go back and look at the power and the power is in the institution. And it is really the institutions that uh, can financially support this type of industry that most likely are there doing the lobbying work to prevent us from ending these tragedies in the United States, especially. So I just wanted to put that out there. Is there any questions about sex trafficking and prostitution as it is, is presented here? We do know that prostitution you know, does uh, happen uh, across economic status. I, I will say this in adulthood, just really quick before I, I, I open for questions. Uh, we do know sex trafficking often leads to adult prostitution, but we also know that prostitution in adulthood uh, goes across all social economic statuses, um, and, and uh, both for prostitutes and for the, the people who are having those services. And, and what we have, what we do know about adult prostitution is, is either it's done out of desperation uh, or it is done as a means to an end um, for, for a lot of individuals. So that's the, the, the issues we have with adult prostitution. Um, and it is a true fact that prostitution in, for adults is the oldest profession we know about when we look at ancient writings the first careers that are mentioned in, in the most aged ancient writings have to do with prostitution. So that's, a, that, that's another interesting issue that we, we, we also are dealing with. Okay, so I wanna open it up for questions. Is there any questions about the sex trafficking or the prostitution aspects of human sexuality? Okay. So this is just kind of a summary of, of the things uh, that we've been talking about is that while Western culture and culture specifically here in the United States has become more sec open sexually and more expressive, there's still a great amount of shame that still is associated with it. Um, much of our attitudes and beliefs about human sexuality are grounded in culture and not biological processes. It's really culture that drives our, whether we're shamed or not shamed or, or we feel uh, that need. So as this uh, uh, graph here, cultures, uh, morals, proper sexual conduct and social focus on sex to gain privilege um, is at conflict with our biological and evolutionary drives which often creates a lot of the shame, guilt, and confusion we see 
behind human sexuality. Okay, now let me stop here real quick. So I just wanna check in and see if anybody has any questions about the video that, that, that we want, that I asked to watch or any of the material that was presented today. This lecture always produces the quietest students. Okay, thank you, Agatha. Okay. All right, so this is where we're gonna head on Thursday. I kinda wanna stop here. Is we started uh, uh, with lectures about uh, different types of uh, marriage arrangements and the definition of marriage. We watched that introductory video about romantic love. We talked about the basics of attraction. Um, and so what, where we're going to head next is now we're going to get down into the weeds of things. We're going to talk about the details about romantic love and relationships. We're going to talk about the phases of romantic love. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, later types and styles of, of love and caring for each other once the sexual drive starts to wane and the addictive aspects of romantic love start to wane. Uh, then we're going to talk about the roles of emotions, about anger, hate, romantic jealousy. Um, and then uh, we're, we'll, we'll spend some time talking about what is a healthy relationship. And we'll talk about three key aspects about emotional security, best friends, and the roles that each partner has in the relationship. Um, we'll, then we'll turn our attention to what is a toxic relationship um, and, and, and how do those develop from a social and personal aspects. Um, and then we'll start broadening that to other types of important social connections that we have, such as friends, family, and culture. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, we'll start to get into uh, more details about the social aspects of, of marriage and, and, and selection. And uh, then we'll get into, then we'll start on the family development aspect of the class. So now that we have two individuals who by a lot of your definitions are committed and want to be with each other. Um, how do we start then the family process about developing family? Um, and again, we'll look at it from a, you know, a, a quote unquote perfect <laughs> way, but then we'll look at all of the variations between functional and dysfunctional type of family uh, uh, settings. And so that's where we're headed. So let's go ahead, If unless anybody has any questions for today, uh, we'll close class for today, and then we will continue the conversation with the more detailed analysis of romantic relationships and relationship formation on Thursday. Um, so if no one has any questions, I'll say good afternoon, and I hope you all are doing well. <laughs>